Our story begins with a young man from out of town, born in 1755, part of a revolution, one of the young voices, someone always taking notes, writing like he was running out of time. Be your Somebody who rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and sometimes went too far. This is the story of Bertrand Barrère de Vieuxac, born the same year as Alexander Hamilton. And he said something that led to something that changed the way the people in another country thought of themselves for a long time. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about a nation of shopkeepers. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. And this is Alex De Palma, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. The parallels between Bertrand Barrere and, of course, Alexander Hamilton are extraordinary. They just keep coming from the year he was born to his reputation first up and then down. But that's not what we came to talk about today. We came to talk about the day he quoted Adam Smith to Napoleon Bonaparte. What Adam Smith, chronicler of politics and capitalism, wrote was, to found a great empire for the sole purpose of raising up a people of customers may at first sight appear a project fit only for a nation of shopkeepers. It is, however, a project altogether unfit for a nation of shopkeepers, but extremely fit for a nation whose government is influenced by shopkeepers. We'll talk in a little bit about what Smith meant, but Bertrand, who was in and out of Napoleon's life, probably quoted Adam Smith to Napoleon. At the end of Napoleon's career, he was banished to St. Helena, and they sent along a doctor, a surgeon, Barry Edward O'Meara, from Ireland. It's from him that the quote derisively stated about England as merely a nation of shopkeepers began to spread. The insult was simple. The insult is, all they know how to do in England is be merchants. Not heroes, not adventurers, not builders, but a nation of shopkeepers. After this idea took hold, Dr. O'Meara went to great pains to write the following. You're meddling in continental affairs and trying to make yourselves a great military power instead of attending to the sea and commerce will yet ruin you as a nation. You were greatly offended with me for having called you a nation of shopkeepers. Had I meant by this that you were a nation of cowards, 
you would have had reasons to be displeased, even though it were ridiculous and contrary to historical facts. But no such thing was ever intended. I meant that you were a nation of merchants, and that all your great riches and your grand resources arose from commerce, which is true. What else constitutes the riches of England? It is not extent of territory or a numerous population. It is not mines of gold, silver, or diamonds. Moreover, no man of sense ought to be ashamed of being called a shopkeeper. But your prince and your ministers appear to wish to change altogether l'esprit of the English and to render you another nation, to make you ashamed of your shops and your trade, which have made you what you are, and to sigh after nobility, titles, and crosses. In fact, to assimilate you with the French. You are all nobility now, instead of the plain old Englishman. To be a nation of shopkeepers is to be aware of the customer, is to be someone who shows up and tends to the store on hours that you set for yourself, to be aware of your competition, to seek to do better, to serve the marketplace so that you in turn can come out a little bit ahead. England was a nation of shopkeepers. The question we ask ourselves is, what kind of nations are we building? And I'd like to posit for a minute the hypothesis with apologies to Barry Edward O'Meara and to Adam Smith, are we building a nation of clerks? Not just a nation of clerks, but a nation of consumers. So consumers first, at what age do we begin to teach children that their primary job is to consume? Steve Pressfield has written extensively about Sparta, a nation of warriors. Or perhaps we could think about ancient Greece, Athens, a nation of philosophers. But what are the lessons that we teach a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-year-old when we hand them an iPad? when we promise them something on Christmas, when they get dessert if they eat all of their Brussels sprouts. The idea is that it is possible to grow up to be a citizen by being a consumer, that we send kids to school, not with two pairs of shoes, which is what most kids had in the 1800s, but with closets filled with clothes, clothes that change with the seasons because we don't want to get left out that we couldn't go to the mall during the pandemic and we missed it. And so we shifted dramatically to browsing and spending time online, not to browse and focus on things we could make better, but to focus on things we could buy with just one click. And sometimes one click is too many. And so instead we subscribe to something and it shows up unbidden. It turns out that the company that sells treats for dogs by subscription is worth over $100 million. By subscription, because it's too much trouble to remember to buy your dog a new treat. And what about becoming a nation of clerks? Well, let's think about it. What do we look for in a clerk? Well, the clerk works indoors, follows instructions, seeks deniability, does what they are asked, but no more figures out how to do just a little bit less, because otherwise the boss will insist they do just a little bit more. Mostly, the clerk wonders if this will be on the test, if people are keeping score, if 
they can stay where they are because it's so fraught to fall off the ladder because then maybe you won't get to be as good a consumer anymore. What is school, traditional school in the Western cultures, and I'm counting India and China on that list, what is school but years and years spent training to be a clerk, to take good notes, to make no mistakes, to write down what you are told and to find out if it's going to be on the test. The pandemic has been a test of so many things, but one of the things it has exposed is the fraud of school as a learning institution as opposed to one that simply educates. Because we are training a billion people to join a nation of clerks because the giant industrialists seem to need more clerks, or at least they're willing to tolerate more clerks so that they can have more consumers. Merchants, on the other hand, merchants are busy trying to solve interesting problems, open new markets, innovate, discover new ways to connect with people, to enable cultural shifts to happen. Because all of those things, those initiatives, those efforts that we take, sometimes at risk to change things, to maybe make things better by making better things, this is the work of a merchant. And a merchant doesn't have to do it for profit. A merchant can be at the helm of a nonprofit that seeks to get people more food or to get them to take their medicine or to develop new technologies. Because all of those things use the skills of the merchant. So it's probably not too late, but I think we have to have a conversation. What is school for? Are we trying to have more clerks? What will we do once we have enough clerks? And what about consumers? What will we do when enough people have enough stuff? One of the things we know about shopkeepers is that they desire their freedom, the freedom to innovate, the freedom to make decisions, the freedom to lead. It's their clerks that want to be told what to do. But the shopkeepers, the merchants, they're looking for the next frontier. Ironically, within Barrere's controversial arc, from being the head of the trial that led to the beheading of a king, to his eventual disgrace and exile from Paris, he argued for a system of education throughout France, a system that would be focused on the Pledge of Allegiance, learning the alphabet, and the teaching of multiplication tables. In fact, he was one of the fathers of creating a nation of clerks. Thanks for listening to my rant. I'm not sure exactly where it goes, but it's something worth thinking about. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. There are show notes there as well. First, a question about education. Hi, Seth. 
Steve Blentlinger here from Chicago, Illinois. I was just listening to your podcast on the magnification of small differences. And the part about the future of education uh, really got me thinking about how online coursework and accreditation can really take hold and what could start it. And I feel like a lot of the education barrier has to do with social status and economic status. And your comments had me thinking about whether you could start a almost maybe a B Corp or start as a nonprofit that is essentially a free education course that's self-guided and online. And as it grows, you could add in video course uh, instruction with uh, actual certified instructors and and guest speakers, because uh, I think in general, a lot of people want to help other people learn what they know. Uh, it's sort of part of your legacy. So uh, the point of the question is whether this new education source may be uh, a grassroots and almost a, a free process and then would become funded uh, for operations, obviously to pay for, you know, keeping the lights on and, and servers and being able to facilitate a good experience for the users. But the actual funding of it could be sourced through uh, either donations through individuals that finish the coursework, uh, donations of people's time, and maybe even donations through um, people who finish the courses and were able to gain good careers and want to give back. Um, That or even corporate uh, sponsorships where, you know, they may want to hire the good self-motivated employees and versus trying to interview college graduates who, you know, have proven that they could finish a coursework and be a good student instead uh, focusing on hiring people who are self-motivated to complete their education online, uh, I think may be a way for people to set themselves apart as well. Uh, Look forward to uh, hearing uh, your response. Thank you for this, Steve. It's something I talked about a long time ago, but it's worth revisiting. I do not believe there is a learning shortage online. I think you can learn a foreign language for free. I think you can learn math. I think you can learn just about any course that's taught at MIT, that the Khan Academy can teach you plenty of things that happen before you go to MIT. Learning is not the same as education. Education is about certification and accreditation, about conforming and about compliance. We go through education to get a scarce piece of paper to prove that we are part of an elite group. And we use that piece of paper to put ourselves into positions of power or authority where we actually do the learning of how to do our job or else we get fired. But education is about will this be on the test? It's about who got in. And mostly it's about the window sticker on our car or on our parents' cars. Because that window sticker, the status that says, I am a good parent, My kid went to a college you have heard of, a famous college, a college with a football team. People are willing to go into debt for the rest of their lives to get that sticker. That's different than learning. Learning is free. It is free online, and it is free if we are willing to put ourselves into the position of enrolling in a journey and then failing and failing and failing as we go forward in community to get better at the thing we want to do. So your idea is not a bad one. There are plenty of institutions online that are free or really close to free compared to how much it costs 
to get an actual degree, and yet most people aren't doing them for the same reason that many people don't read books because it feels like school, because it feels like work, because they're not sure it's going to be worth the journey. So the hard part isn't how do we make this online thing free? The hard part is how do we create a new game, a new ratchet, a new status symbol that's about the fact that you do projects, that you know how to lead, that you are connected, that you're doing work that matters for people who care. Those things are much harder to label. But we only started labeling higher education 50 years ago. It's only recently that football coaches got paid $4 million, $6 million a year. It's only recently that people ended up a quarter of a million dollars in debt to get that sticker. So yeah, I'm ranting, but you get my point. If you want to learn something, go learn something. And the best way to do that is in community, surrounded by others, creating a cycle of peer pressure that gets us to where we want to go. Thanks for the question. Hey, Seth. This is Lightning Lucas in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. A question regarding your recent episode, Fueling the Engines of Division. You said that three or four or five people would be all that it would take to really turn the algorithm in a more positive direction. But I think you and I both know that it's doubtful that those particular powerful five people will take such an action. So I'm wondering if you could go on a deeper dive into what us average people can do to help make sure the future of technology is in our favor rather than not. Bingo. Great point. It's pretty clear to most people who have been paying attention that the game that's played at the giant tech companies isn't necessarily the game we'd want them to play. That once people make it far enough to be managing a public company, to be surrounded by thousands and thousands of coworkers who all have stock options, the game sort of gets relentless, as I pointed out last week when I was talking about Amazon. This relentless idea of turning a ratchet in one and only one direction and doing as little as you can get away with in other directions because the thing you're trying to do in this case is maximize long-term shareholder value, that whole canard from Milton Friedman. That's not the only role. But here's a hypothetical. Let's say that Starbucks was putting something into the coffee, adulterating it with something that was legal, something that the FDA wasn't regulating, but something that gave us an earache all day long, something that lowered the happiness of all the people who are going to Starbucks. But due to their location and due to their customer service and the status that goes with going to Starbucks, people kept going and they kept getting less and less happy and their ears kept hurting. Do we think that through collective action, we would change the rules and say, hey, Starbucks, stop putting that stuff in the coffee? And I think history would show that we would. Well, in the case of the monopolies, the big five or six companies, that are running so many of the interactions that privileged folks like me are spending time in online, given that, what are we gonna do about it? Well, it's clearly not gonna be solved by the free market because the market isn't free because these network effect-driven businesses are natural monopolies and playing by the rules that were there when they got there, 
They are not making us happier. They are not doing things that are leading to long-term positive changes in our culture. And so, collective action is needed. The first one, which I've talked about, is Cory Doctorow's concept of adversarial interoperability. Basically letting anybody who wants to build something that plugs into these platforms. Because if you can plug into these platforms, data can be shared outside of the silo. So instead of there being one Facebook or one Twitter, there can be lots and lots of services that connect in and out. And what this would enable is organizations to work for other purposes other than how do we enrich the shareholders at Facebook. And part of it is it would be easy to leave because once your data can be taken from one of these platforms and put somewhere else, then the platforms have to behave better because the free market goes back to being free. Because the absurdity of the Starbucks example is if Starbucks was really making people sick, you'd just pick a different kind of coffee. It's harder to do that with the sticky systems that these big companies are building all around us. So collective action, the idea that the community is going to stand up and say, wait a minute, 10 years in, after giving you an enormous amount of freedom and the benefit of the doubt, you've made things worse, not better. So time's up. New rules. You can continue to be relentless, but just like you had to play by the old rules, you're going to have to play by the new rules. And yes, as we've seen from recent news reports, those new rules include paying your taxes. So when you add all of that up, what I'm arguing for is they're either going to clean up their act, and I don't think they will, or we, all of us, we have to do it with them and for them. Because in the long run, even the people there are going to benefit. All the money in the world doesn't help if you're living in a culture you can't be proud of. Thanks for listening. I've been ranting today. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.